If you have a Bible with you, if you want to go to Exodus chapter 25, we've been going through the Exodus story over the last few weeks, months, and years, um, and we're in chapter 25 today. We're going to read the first 22 verses, which will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. So I'll read these, and then I'll pray. Uh, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. Derek was just talking about putting paper bills and coins in the offering. If you have any goat skin, you can put that in as well. That's fine. Oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, oink stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside, you shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you should put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it and shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out the wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I'll speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we can gather here as your people this morning and that we can know your presence with us, that we can say that God is here, 
that you dwell in the midst of your people. And we can come here today and receive from you. We can have you speak to us and lead us. So Holy Spirit, we want to open our hearts to you and just humbly say to you that we want you to have your way in in our lives. That we want to submit everything to you. That we want to follow you wherever you lead us. But more than anything, we want our hearts to be drawn ever closer to you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Lead us, guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When we come to pieces like this in the Bible, when you read chunks of text that describe uh, the tabernacle or what became the temple, uh, bits which seem to be talking about some kind of religious institution, when you find passages about what seems to be endless sacrifices and rituals and all sorts of things that you might not understand that take place in the tabernacle, in the temple. Um, as a believer in Jesus, you, you, you kind of feel that you have to read them, perhaps out of a sense of duty, maybe. But it's quite easy just to skip over these things, to kind of skim read through it, let it pass you by. Or it might be if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've just walked in here because you're interested in what was happening in this building, you might have heard us read that passage and think, well, surely this is the reason that Christianity is, is dead because surely this is all just nonsense. This is just ridiculous, bizarre. This is kind of proof that Christians are all perhaps deluded. Um, it's very easy to just ignore passages like this. And yet, actually, the majority of what happens now in the Exodus story is about the tabernacle, what happens in this holy sanctuary. A significant chunk of the Bible is all about this theme. And the Bible actually speaks very positively about the tabernacle, about what the tabernacle becomes, the temple. It says in Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. That's describing the tabernacle. How lovely is your dwelling place. The Israelites would have had this sense of joy it would have been the, 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 the heartbeat of their faith. The center of what they believed was that this is where God dwelt. This is the place where they came to meet with God. And we're going to really focus in on two verses today in this passage from verses 8 and 9, where it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I'll show you concerning the pattern of the temple. So there are two descriptions in those verses about what this place is, this 
building, this structure, this big tent uh, that they're to build. First of all, it calls it a, a sanctuary, and then it calls it a tabernacle. Sanctuary and tabernacle. And on one hand, this idea of a tabernacle reflects the, uh, the closeness, what theologians might call the, the imminence, like the nearness of God. That there's a place where God dwells, where God is, where he's decided to, to be near his people. Not a distant, faraway God, not this creator God who lives somewhere up in the heavens, but he's decided to make his home, his tabernacle, his tent. The Israelites have just come through this season where they've been traveling through the wilderness, living in tents. They didn't have a big city at this point. So God doesn't say to them at this point, build me a massive building while you all live in tents. God comes to live in a tent as well. That's what the tabernacle is. It's a big tent where God lives. It's the place where God comes to meet with man, his house. But it's also a sanctuary. It's a holy place. You have this sense of imminence, closeness, nearness, but this sense of transcendence of the holiness, the otherness of God. That they build a special place of worship because he's a holy God, he's a powerful God, that somehow God is he's different from us, he's other from us, he's majestic, he's powerful. This is the throne room of their divine heavenly king. Even the way it's designed, the way it's built, is supposed to be like God's heavenly throne room, but here on earth. This is where the king of all glory and power is supposed to meet, where he resides. And as we've been going through this Exodus story, this is where it's kind of been building up to. We've used this phrase a few times, that God draws us out. He drew the people of Israel out of Egypt through their Exodus story, through the plagues, the Red Sea, but he draws them out to draw them in. And where he's drawing them into is into his presence. That's the supreme purpose of this Exodus story. It says that in, in chapter 29 of Exodus, that God brought them out that he might dwell among them. That was his plan. There's always God's plan that he would dwell with his people, amongst his people, in their midst. And in both respects, this idea of sanctuary, this idea of tabernacle, that God's this holy, powerful, majestic God, but he's also a God that's come near to us. In a sense, it's a bit like a, what's happening here is a kind of mini Garden of Eden, now let me try and explain that for you. Because in the, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, what do, God does is he makes a garden where he dwells with Adam and Eve. That's the very start of the Bible story, that God creates this garden where he dwells with his people. It says in Genesis 3 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You get this wonderful intimacy that was available to them 
for Adam and Eve of their relationship with God, that in the cool of the day, in the, in the evening, where the sun's just coming down, it's peaceful and quiet, and God's there walking in the garden, just going for an evening stroll through the garden. But then if you flip forward to Leviticus, where there's this verse that describes this tabernacle, it says, I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That in the same way that God walked, took an evening stroll through the Garden of Eden, that he's going to do the same thing in his tabernacle, that God's there walking. See, if you look back to the, this, the Garden of Eden, it's this temple right at the very start of the Bible. It's this tabernacle, this place where God dwells, his sanctuary with Adam in some respects, almost as like the high priest of his sanctuary. That's what's happening in the, in the Garden of Eden. And even in, if you were to have walked through this tabernacle, this tent that they make, that later they build into a temple in the center of Jerusalem, if you would have walked through that, it, they, all around the walls there would have been images taken from the Garden of Eden. So you'd have seen pictures of pomegranates, of flowers, of palm trees, of lilies, cedars, of olive wood. It was supposed to be a reflection of this beautiful uh, creative garden that God had made to come and dwell amongst his people. Even at this, this passage we just read, it talks about this cherubim, these two cherubs that sit above the mercy seat. And that would have reminded them of the cherubim that stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. There's a picture here, there's a mirror, there's something that's happening. And if you go right to the end of the Bible in Revelation 20, uh, Revelation 21, again you see that God comes to make his dwelling place with his people. The, the book, the Bible starts with this picture of this garden, this tabernacle, this place where God dwells. God with us. And then all the way through the Bible story, that's what keeps coming back again, is that God always wants to have a place where he dwells with his people. The beginning of the book right through to the very end, God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with them. Right in the middle of, if you know the story of Genesis, perhaps the most famous element of the garden was the tree of life. Right in the middle, the whole focus is on this beautiful tree, the tree of life. And the thing is in the tabernacle as well, it goes on later in Exodus 25 to explain this lampstand, this menorah that they were to build, which in, reflects this tree that in the center of the tabernacle, again, there's a tree of life. If you go through to Revelation, again, you see this image in this kind of dream that John has in the book of Revelation. Again, you see this tree of life, again, where God's presence flows out, his blessing flows out from there to his people. God desires and dwells to be with us. And it would be great 
if the story ended there. <laughs> Beautiful picture. You know, the Bible starts with this wonderful garden where God dwells with his people and ends again with God dwelling with his people in this wonderful garden temple. We think, oh, great. That's pretty, isn't it? We could just leave it there. That could be the end of the story. How pleasant. Yet we know the Bible story. We know that Adam and Eve sinned and they were sent away. They were exiled, sent out of the garden. That that verse I read from Genesis 3 of God walking in the garden, it says they heard the sound and they didn't run to him, but they ran away. They fled because they'd sinned, because they'd failed God. They were suddenly aware of their guilt and their shame, so they hid from God. They had the opportunity to come to him, and instead they hid. They ran away. And in some ways, you can understand the story of the Bible is God creates this dwelling place, this home, where not only is it God's home, but it's our home. It's where they lived. But then they were sent away, they were exiled, and something in us always yearns for home again. That restoration back to what God always intended, that we would know him with us, that that would be our home. Or another way to describe it is that at the very beginning, what God intended was intimacy, closeness, nearness. But then his people are sent away, and within us is always this yearning for intimacy, for nearness, for closeness, with God. And through Adam, this sin spread through the whole earth. God said at the beginning, at the very start of the Bible, God said, let there be light. And the world was formed. But then through sin, darkness spreads through the earth instead. And so much, so much of Religion across the whole world, so much of religion is seeking to regain that home, seeking to regain that intimacy. It's seeking to turn the lights back on again in the darkness. Not just religion, but so much of our lives, so much of your existence is trying to find where your home is. Trying to find that sense of peace in your heart. Trying to find that sense of intimacy, of nearness, of just satisfaction, contentment in your hearts. We spend so much of our life pursuing all sorts of different things because we're yearning for that thing. We long just to be at home, just to be contented. We yearn, we long for intimacy, and we, we try all sorts of different things to, to give us that, but the desire actually within us is that we wanna be with God, because <laughs> that's how he made us. 
That's how we, that's in our, in our design, in our DNA is to be with God. And everything within you will spend your life yearning for that thing. And yet so much of spirituality, it, it seeks to escape this flesh, this life, to create some kind of transcendent experience to almost reach up to God. It's seeking some kind of moments, almost like a spiritual ladder, a kind of escapism. You know, how much of your life, how much of your rest is defined by escapism? You've had a long day and you're weary and you're tired. So you indulge in some escapism. It's not necessarily bad, it's just watching a sports game or a movie, but there's something in you that, that wants to escape from life, that wants to just have your eyes, your focus, your thoughts somewhere else, away from the troubles in front of you, and you, you put it somewhere else. Again, it's, it's that desire for God within you. It's this yearning within you for something bigger, something better, but we try and reach it by escaping. If you look around the world around us, there are lots of different movements that kind of on a grander scale work in the same way. So people could talk about being kind of progressive, of seeking a better world, of that if we just work hard, if we just get all these things in the right order, we can progress to some kind of urban utopia, some kind of ideal of modern society somewhere in the future that will be perfect. If we just cut out this bad thing or that bad thing, this thing that we don't like, this idea we're progressing towards something. Or even the, you know, in the press a lot of the moment is this idea of you know, environmentalism. And again, it's working on the same thing. If we stop doing this, if we, if we cut out these things, we can get somewhere, we can achieve some kind of utopia, some kind of perfect world, escape from what haunts us in this life and find something better. And what these things are searching for are like a kingdom without a king. You know, a, a garden without a gardener. It's all working on the same internal pursuit of something greater, of something better, of something more beautiful, something more powerful. There's something within us that yearns for something. And yet, see, the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus is that where we try and escape this life, whether it's engaging in some kind of big movement that's just beyond ourselves to achieve some future dream, or whether it's just the little tiny bits of escapism that we indulge in to take our mind off the problem around us, we, we try and escape. We try and escape. But that's not the message of the Bible. It's not that you can have some kind of transcendent experience to escape life, to meet with God. It's actually that he's stepped 
down. Even so, there are whole religious belief systems that believe that somehow our flesh, our body, is somehow inferior, somehow holds us back. It's this broken thing that lets us down. If I could just kind of escape from this flesh, engage in some kind of spiritual experience that lifts me out of myself, and yet God stepped down into human flesh, that God became man, that Jesus took on human form. that he stepped into our world, into our life. That's what it says in John chapter one. It says the word, it's talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwell, it means, it means like Jesus came to, to tabernacle. <laughs> Jesus came to to live to set up his house to live with us. In John chapter two, Jesus is talking to some, some of the religious leaders at the time. And they're talking about the future of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, he says something quite profound there. He says, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. And they're thinking, you're going to destroy this massive building, and then three you're going to rebuild it in three days. That's impossible. It took us hundreds of years to build this building. <laughs> but Jesus isn't talking about the temple. He's talking about himself. Because he believed that he was the temple, that he is the temple, that God dwells not in a building thousands of miles away, but has come to us in human form as Jesus Christ. He's come to live amongst his people, that Jesus pitched his tent. He came to tabernacle with us. That we no longer need to go to a sacred place because we have a sacred person. He's come to dwell amongst his people who was destroyed but three days later rose again so that we might have life, that we might know him, that we might know him dwelling within us. In Matthew 12, again, he's talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. All these passages in Exodus they point to something greater. That it's not just that God's going to come and dwell above his ark in this tent somewhere in the Middle East, but he's come to live amongst his people now in Jesus Christ. And that's the story of the Bible, that whereas we might want to just escape that God's stepped in to be with us, to live with us. And it might be you're here this morning, you think, well, I would actually, I'd quite like to escape. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some things that I can't deal with that it actually would be great if God could just rescue me from those things. 
And, and God does rescue. <laughs> That's the Exodus story. That he rescues the people of God out of slavery. But he always rescues people for a reason. He rescues people for a reason. Because he wants to draw you to himself. But as well as rescuing, what God often does a lot of the time is he steps down. So we would love it if it's just, oh, this situation. If you could just fix it, God. So often, I don't know about you, so often my, my prayer life, that's where I come to. God, if you could just fix this thing over here and that thing over here, if you just put a bit more money in our bank account, a new shiny car, if you could just stop my hair receding, if you could just fix these things, God, life would be perfect. And yet so often what God does is he steps down as he comes to be with us. This is how he works. There's a beautiful story in the book of Daniel. I don't know if you know the story of uh, three men called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are brilliant names, aren't they? You know, lots of Christians name their children after characters from the Bible, but you don't meet many Abednegoes, do you? It's a shame. Some of you need to think about that. But in the story, what happens is they, they upset. This is when the Israelites are in exile under a foreign ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. And I can't tell, go into all the details of the story, but they, they upset some of the rulers. They upset the king. And he, he decides to throw them into the fire. And if you read the story, these three men are adamant that God will rescue them. They're adamant that he's going to save them. And yet as the story gets closer and closer, it's a bit like you know, that moment in a movie that you know that at some point the story's going to shift. That something wonderful is going to happen and the hero is going to be saved. But as the story goes on, it gets closer and closer, and you think, oh, maybe this isn't one of those stories. It says that he, the, the king ordered the fire to be heated seven times greater. And that idea of seven is basically as hot as it possibly could be. It was so hot that the, the guards who threw them into the fire, they died. That even Nebuchadnezzar's own henchmen couldn't survive, they were burned. And yet these... Three men get thrown into the fire and the king looks into the fire and he sees four people there. It's a very bizarre story in the Bible. You think, well, you imagine the king thinking, well, there was three of them and now there's four. How do you, why did someone else step into the fire? What's going on? And he says, it looks like a son of man, as in <laughs> theologians aren't quite sure who exactly was there. Was this an angel? Was this Jesus? But what we do know is that God stepped in. He didn't just rescue them at the last minute. He didn't just say, oh, well, we, we're, let's just push it right to the, we're going to push their faith right to that wonderful extreme moment and then I'm going to rescue them. 
God steps into the fire with them. And then he leads them out. That's the wonderful same story of, we can read this Exodus story and we can make it into this kind of beautiful, wonderful picture and, and miss just the sheer horrible brutality of what the Israelites were suffering for year after year after year, decades of suffering, waiting for a rescue that, that seemed as though it would never come. And even when it does arrive, the number of times they doubt, they get cross with Moses, they think, oh, this is just a lie. They want to turn back to Pharaoh, to their old gods, their old way of living. And yet God steps down into the fire to rescue them. And that's what, exactly the same as what he's done with you. That all through the Bible, God's aim again and again and again is he wants to be with his people. And in Jesus Christ, he's chosen to be with us, to be with you. That he stepped down to take upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sin, for our guilt, our shame. He took it all upon himself to rescue us, to lead us out. And I guess you might be thinking, well, that's the lovely, comforting words, but you know, I think it doesn't solve my problem. <laughs> if you've got a, a really practical problem that's causing you stress and anguish, you might think, well, I know, I know God loves me, and I know he's rescued me, but it doesn't solve this issue in my life. But you've got to remember that the goal that God is working towards is so much bigger than what you think it is. We get, we get tricked into thinking, if, if this thing just got fixed, then that, that would be everything solved. That would be my utopia, my heaven. If this thing just got done, then oh, I'd be at peace. But if that's how you think, then it's probably because that thing, whatever it is, has kind of in a way become your God. If you think that thing getting fixed will fix you, then you've put your hope in the wrong thing. The goal that God's leading towards is not just fixing all these little peccadilloes, all these little issues in your life. What he's leading you to is himself, is deeper into him. And that's where you'll find the home that you've been searching for the intimacy that you've been desiring, the peace, the contentment, the satisfaction that you yearn for because you're made that way to yearn for God. And when you find your rest in him, your home in him, that's where you'll find your peace in Jesus. Let's pray. The band are going to come and lead us in a few songs of worship. We're not going to take communion today because we don't have all the stuff with us that's in our old building. But next week we will.
But let me just come and pray for us. Jesus, we, we thank you that we don't even need to come to you anymore because you've come to us. That right from the very beginning of the Bible, that's always been your desire, to dwell with your people. It's the, why this tabernacle and the later temple were built thrown into the context of a sinful people was a way that you designed that you could be with them. And yet now we know that we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need any sacrifices or rituals. We don't need a high priest. Because Jesus, you were both the sacrifice and the high priest so that you could be our temple amongst us. that we might say, God, where are you? No, God, why don't you hear my prayer? Why don't you solve this thing? And yet we've forgotten that you're with us, that you've set your presence amongst your people, your church, that each of us can say, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not Christ out there, Maybe one day I can reach him. Maybe if I behave well enough, I can build some kind of spiritual ladder to get there. But because of his grace, we can say, Christ in me. And nothing we've done or said or thought this week has expelled him from us. But Jesus just keeps coming to us in his mercy, in his grace. Thank you, God, that you... You're here now, not because we're in a special building, not because of some feeling that we might feel, whether we feel like it or not, you're here. You're with us because of your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing love for us. Amen.